This week on Flyover from NPR News, do guns make you feel free or afraid? I'm Carrie Miller. Another gunman, another national tragedy, this time in Las Vegas. The shooter's motives remain a mystery. The weapons, and he had dozens, were apparently all legal. But mass killings account for only a fraction of thousands of gun deaths each year in the U.S., In a divided country, it's hard to come up with an issue more divisive than guns. Most people who carry say firearms are essential to their freedom, but millions of other Americans live in fear of the guns around them. And let's be honest, when we talk gun culture, it means something very different in Chicago than it does in Cheyenne. In this hour of Flyover, we'll take your calls and an honest conversation about what guns mean in America. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News, a national call-in show about who we are in tumultuous times. Today, guns and American identity. Bearing arms is, of course, addressed in our Constitution. 300 million guns are privately owned in this country. Three-quarters of the people who own those guns say having a firearm is essential to their freedom. Freedom from or of what? Guns are deeply embedded in the American myth and the fabric of our day-to-day lives. And that isn't going to change, even as all Americans mourn the tragedy in Las Vegas and brace ourselves for the next one. As we invite our guests into the discussion and open the phone lines to you, I'd like you to think about this. If you're a gun owner and you associate gun ownership with a sense of freedom— I'd like to hear more about that. Tell me why. And tell me about that from all parts of the country, whether you live in a bigger city like Chicago or St. Louis, or you live in more rural parts of America in Ohio and Idaho and Wisconsin and California. And if you support some restrictions to gun ownership, whether you have a gun or not, how do you explain this powerful link between guns and national identity? So I want to hear from you wherever you are listening today. If you're a gun owner and you have that association between gun ownership with the sense of freedom, tell me why. 1-83-FLYOVER-1. That's 1-833-596-8371. And if you support some restrictions to gun ownership, whether you have a gun or not, how do you explain this powerful link between guns and national identity? One eight three flyover one, or talk to us about it on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR. Wherever you're tweeting, use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Our guest today, Brian Levin, is the director for the study of hate and extremism at California State University at San Bernardino. He's the co-author of Limits of Dissent, and he's with us today from San Bernardino. And Brian, welcome to Flyover. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Jacqueline Schildkraut is with us. She's assistant professor of public justice at the State University of New York at Oswego. And she's with us today from Oswego, New York. And Jackie, welcome to you. Good to have you on Flyover as well. Good to be here, Carrie. Thank you for having me. Jackie, I, I know you've done a lot of research on mass shootings. I think you did your dissertation right on the myths and the realities of of uh, mass shootings. And, and I'm interested in the myths of what you studied and how closely that aligns with what we're learning about Las Vegas. What could you say? Um, That's an excellent question. When it comes to my dissertation, I actually looked at the media representations of mass shooters um, in a post-Columbine era, sort of how did Columbine change the discussion about how we talk about these events with mass shooters and the myths um, that we're looking at, which was the subject of my first book that was loosely based on my dissertation. We, we tend to think that there's a profile for a mass shooter. Um, you know, if you ask the general public, they'll tell you it's a younger white male with some sort of grievance. And that's not entirely the case. Um, white males account for about 54 percent of mass shooters. Um, we see mass shooters of all races, colors, ethnicities, religions. There have been female shooters to a much lesser extent. But the shooting in Las Vegas is definitely a little different than I think what we've seen in the past. Uh, not since 1966 with the University of Texas uh, clock tower shooting have we seen anybody have a sniper position in the same way that the shooter in Las Vegas did, mm-hmm. uh, where they're elevated above 
their above the ground from their their suspects or subjects rather sorry um the other thing that we're also seeing is that a difference in sort of the cachet of weapons this particular shooter in las vegas had 23 weapons um of varying size capacities and such normally what we see with mass shooters is that they'll have fewer weapons and more magazines so they still might have equitable firepower but it's distributed a different way Brian, um, I, I'm going to go to some calls here quickly, but but I'd like your sense of why this idea of this sense of freedom is linked with gun, gun ownership and how that influences maybe the way that we discuss gun ownership and gun rights in the wake of a tragedy like Las Vegas. How do we put that all together? Well, I think we put it together in a few ways. The first is that we have some kind of constitutional nexus. I'm not saying that all of these are directly supportive of every claim, but this is where they're derived from. So we do have a Second Amendment, a a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms Mm -hmm. shall not be infringed. Twenty seven words. Interestingly enough, as we've heard before, and your show has done a great job on this, you know, gun regulations uh, have existed for some time, including with respect to the to the Second Amendment. And indeed, there has been a folklore developed along with this, in part based on a Jeffersonian na- uh, notion that tyrannical governments uh, can be uprooted. But our government had its own mechanisms for evolution and change. So it's doubtful that the the founders regarded a personal ability to overthrow the government uh, as something that they were trying to propound. Rather, uh, every white male property owner from 17 to 45 at the at the time, was a member of the militia. And what this was was based on was the notion that if, if a populace was armed and uh, was part of a state militia, that a tyrannical central government would be less likely to take root. That being said, most recently, as we heard in the 2008 Heller case, the Supreme Court, by a five to four decision, said there is a personal right to bear arms, but it's not just this unfettered right. Every other f- fundamental right, which is in the Constitution, has been held to have limitations. And that's where I think the folklore really diverges from what the Constitution is, even if you take Antonin Scalia's very originalist construction. Uh, so let's put that – this is interesting what you're saying about the folklore of this and and perhaps common misconceptions about what the founders meant. And let's put that up against some of our listeners and callers today who I think are connecting this idea of gun ownership with a sense of freedom to Robert in Greensboro, North Carolina. Robert, is that how you think about the, the ability to possess guns? It is. There's a lot of dangerous laws that have been passed over the years that threaten my business. Um, I don't trust the government. And in my thought, if somebody's going to come, basically, if martial laws called or anything else, I don't have a right to grow food. They can come and take my food because I produce food, and I'm sorry. I'm going to protect what's mine. This government has me personally in a state where I'm armed because I do not trust this government. And so, and so, Robert, I just want to understand this. When you hear Brian say we have many, many modes of correcting whatever wrongs that we perceive in the country and in our government— you don't trust those either. In the end, this comes back to having a firearm and being able to defend what's yours. I have lost faith in those. I'm sorry. As I've watched this country change, I've lost faith in the system. I do not believe the system works. I believe between, you know, everything that's going on. But on the same token, as a parent, as a gun owner, I know that I have to go through more stringent examinations to get a license for real estate than I do to have have a gun, to carry a gun. I have to go through. So should there be more stringent things put in place to protect the public? Yes, I would agree with that. I don't think that we need silencers. I don't think that we need. 
but you're not taking my guns. I'm not giving up my guns or my right to defend my property or the right to defend what's mine. Robert, I'm really glad you called. I think you represent the tension in the debate and in the conversation. And Jackie, I'd like to know what you hear and what Robert said. I think Robert actually, you know, kind of speaks to an ability to hear both sides of the argument. He certainly, as a gun owner, recognizes his fundamental rights given to him under the Second Amendment that were upheld in D.C. versus Heller and later in McDonald v. Chicago. But he also understands as a gun owner that it's not just about owning a gun. It's about owning a gun responsibly and going through the safety training, having protocols in place and making sure that you're you're owning responsibly. And to the phones here to Marty in Chicago, Illinois. Marty, what what strikes you about this idea of connecting gun ownership with with this sense of freedom? And and given what our our caller Robert had to say. Hey, Marty, are you there? Ah, Let me try Alexis in Chicago. Hi, Alexis. How are you thinking about this? Well, um, I've mostly been against gun ownership most of my life. Um, My husband had a gun, but when he insisted he really wanted one, I wasn't going to stop him. So I, you know, went through the training and just like your last caller said, you know, felt we have to be responsible because it is a weapon. Uh, But now, you know, for years I was always anti-gun, really didn't want anything to do with them. I understand why rural folks need them. But in the city, in a city like Chicago, it's just dangerous. I'm literally in the car right now going through uh, one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city. And it's getting worse and worse here because of our underfunding, because of our pension problems. There's the cops don't come anymore. I mean, people you have tons of stories of getting robbed, getting injured, getting, you know, different things. And they're not coming. There's just not enough police here right now. And so it's getting to the point where I'm like, you know what? We may need to protect ourselves. And that scares me because I'm as liberal as they come. And if I'm thinking about gun ownership, I can't imagine what you know, folks in, in more rural areas and that are thinking. I get it. I, I don't I still don't really agree with everybody having access to crazy, you know, semi automatics and stuff, but a handgun, I get it. And Alexis, when you see the numbers, um, given what you just said about your political background, you see the numbers about the association between having a gun in the house and the danger of accidental death or a suicidal death being greater than the possibility that you're going to have to defend yourself, how does that change how, or, or does it at all change how what you've just said and how you think about what it means to have a gun? It's definitely something I've thought about. Um, you know, I don't have any kids that are in my house, so I wouldn't worry about that as much. Um, you know, I, I totally get that that it can be a safety issue. But again, that's why whether it was when my husband had, at the time, a a gun in the house and I made sure that I was trained and knew how to access it and everything else and made sure no one else knew it was there, uh, that is equally smart and important as, say, when I had a very, very large dog that I owned and I made sure he was well-trained so that he couldn't hurt anyone because it's all a weapon. It's, it's, you know, I I do get the whole, um, oh, well, you know, it's not the gun, it's the people thing. Lexus, I'm going to have to stop you right there. You're listening to Flyover, and today we're talking about guns and American identity. Stay with us. I know not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join this conversation on Twitter. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio or share your experience on our live blog at flyoverradio.org. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover, a national call-in show from NPR News about who we are in tumultuous times. Today, we're considering where the access to guns and American identity meet. Why do so many gun owners believe their firearms give them a sense of freedom? What do the Americans who don't own guns and worry about accessibility to them think about that? Jackie Schildkraut is with us. She's an assistant professor of public justice at the State University of New York at Oswego and the author of Mass Shootings, Media Myths and Realities. And Brian Levin is with us, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University and co-author of Limits of Dissent. 
event. Brian, I want to note some a little bit of context here before we go right back to the phones. Um, there, there's an interesting social context point here. Pew Research found that most gun owners move in circles where gun ownership is quite common. 49% of polls said all or most of their friends own guns. And when you flip that, you find that many people who don't own guns don't hang around with very many people who own guns. I, I think that's got to be part of, I mean, as we say, this is like one of the most divisive issues in a divided America. And maybe that's part of why. What, what, what's your insight on that? You know, it's really interesting because we're talking about one variable, right? But if you look at support or let me let me say this. If you look at people who are Republican, who believe that guns are an important issue, it's about double the number of those who are Democrat. What else? Geography plays a role. Uh, in many parts of the country, gun restrictions uh, relate to what state you're in. And, and so it's, uh, a lot of it is rural versus urban as well, because people in in large, uh, less densely populated states tend to live in areas where where gun legislation is uh, more liberal, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many people have their nexus of friends within a certain geographic area. What about so the? Ge- it, it makes sense in a bunch of levels. Yeah, Jacqueline. What about the geography part of this? I definitely agree with what he said. I'm in New York State, and after Sandy Hook, our governor passed an extremely comprehensive gun control package that probably wouldn't have passed in Western states um, after Sandy Hook. Uh, So I I certainly agree with him that geography does play a role in it, as does the urban versus rural argument. And even though, uh, I mean, we're hearing from some people, some listeners in Chicago today, Jackie, and we know that as we heard from Alexis, there's a serious gun problem and violence problem in a city like Chicago. And yet Chicago has some pretty tough gun laws. They just have a situation where, again, geography is influencing what's happening in the city because illegal guns, guns on the black market are coming into the city and it's been almost impossible to regulate. Absolutely. I think that one thing that we have to be mindful of is whether we're talking about gun violence in Chicago or we're talking about a mass shooter. If individuals are determined to carry out any type of violent crime, they're going to figure out a way to get their weapons, uh, you know, or get their hands on weapons. Mm -hmm. To the phones here to Jonathan in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for waiting. What do you want to say on this? Oh, well, I mostly wanted uh, to say I'm actually a little bit of background on me is that I am a concealed carry holder here in the state of Ohio. Uh And I was originally uh, led to be a concealed carry holder after a lot of these mass shootings started happening. Really? I don't I don't find myself in a situation where I am feel in danger all the time. But I have to look after my wife and I have to look after the people around me. And I, I have the ability as a legally armed citizen to respond so much faster than wherever the nearest policeman is. Uh, Jonathan, um, so- can I ask you something about and again, we know that when it's when we talk about gun violence here, these mass shootings, as frequent as they seem to be, are the exception to most of the people who get caught up in gun violence rather than the rule. But what would you have done if you'd been concealing and caring that night in Las Vegas at that concert? Well, of course, you know, the concealed carry handgun is a handgun permit, and we're not allowed to, you know, and of course it wouldn't be logistically really possible to conceal carry a large firearm, uh, something that would have the ability of reaching uh, you know, elevated sniper right. position like right. that shooter had. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did see that he actually um, killed himself when he first saw the initial threat of that SWAT team coming up uh, to end the threat. And if that had been a concealed carry holder, that might have happened much sooner if they were able to get inside the hotel or if there was a uh, concealed carry holder in the room next door that that could have been ended much quickly. Had I been down in the crowd, I would have been very limited, just like the rest of those people were, as to what I could have done, because I would have put more people in danger if I was trying to shoot a quarter mile away up into a hotel building. 
I really appreciate the call, and I'm glad you heard the show, to Dan in Minneapolis. Uh, Dan, you're also a gun owner? Yes, I am. Tell me how you're thinking about this. So one of the big issues that uh, we face here in this nation is an issue of communication today. Uh, Like you say, we're currently existing in a tumultuous time where things are really uncertain, both politically, domestically, in foreign affairs. Um, We're all very divided here. And one of the things that I feel that is really important that your show is doing as well, and I appreciate everyone here, is that we're communicating. And the key is to have this communication. Um, For me, owning a firearm represents freedom, in my opinion, because I have a believe is a firm understanding of the ideas that the founders put into gun ownership for the citizenry of this country. Mm -hmm. We have to remember back then, um, it was a time where people were transferring away from being subjects of uh, kings and rulers and of elite classes and more of being able to self-determine what direction they wanted to take with their lives. So the gun, the second amendment is more of a symbolic thing towards allowing the average citizen to determine themselves for themselves, their own destiny going forward. Uh-huh. And being a citizen versus being a subject is a very important burden that we all have to share from whatever political belief or background we have or whatever we share geographically, either from a city to a rural area. If you understand what it is to be a citizen in the American country, then it is that gun ownership, while being a right, is also a burden to carry. It is a very difficult thing to manage. And it's important for all of us, both gun owners and non-gun owners, to understand that some people carry weapons, some people train or practice with weapons, with the expressed intention of allowing others who don't desire or don't want to so that they don't have to. Okay, so so Dan, you've brought us back to the history of this. And Brian, I, I want to come back to you on this because you heard Dan talking about this, this feeling of self-reliance and this connection to American history and what the founders wanted. And I wonder if, I, I think this is something you alluded to at the beginning, if this is really misunderstood what it was like, what the gun culture was like and the laws were like, let's say in the American frontier, uh, how we regulated guns back then and how kind of the mythology around this has developed over the years around gun ownership in contemporary times. Well, 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 certainly there has been gun ownership. And, And I think, you know, Part of the issue here is even though it, it, it's such an emotional issue for people, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, that, that we're forgetting it's not a binary kind of thing. So, so for instance, much of the early um, post-colonial uh, laws said, for instance, in Massachusetts, people have a right to keep and to bear arms for the common defense that was the Massachusetts Constitution, uh, for instance. So there was a notion that, yes, absolutely, uh, there was a threat from centralized government. Um, however, there was also something that was propounded by the founding fathers, and that was the notion of dual state federal governance mm-hmm. and and part of the protection against this and, and and bear with me on this against this tyranny was the construction of state militias which are now national guards okay for now that being said people uh as i said white male property owners 17 to 45 for the most part were considered members of militias and m- many of these people had had muskets and a, and a variety of weapons i think the issue here that we really have to address though is is regulation allowable under the second amendment and even someone like justice scalia who wrote the majority opinion in the gun rights ownership landmark case said that this right, at least with respect to his particular case, which revolved around a handgun in the home in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. that is protected. And then obviously to the states as well. But he also said this is basically not a blank check for anyone to carry any kind of weapon at any time with any ammo. And he was quite explicit 
in the text of his decision. And, and that's why I, I think when folks say, you know, any regulation is a violation of my liberty, it's because of a combination of both this narrative folklore that we had and, and in closing, also the sense that I think people have a declining trust in government to protect them. For sure. And, I, I was Brian, I just want to turn to Jackie on that real yeah, quick before we do. grab another call. I, I, we have heard that, I think, consistently, Jackie, since the beginning of the conversation. Alexis in Chicago saying, I'm driving through areas I feel like I need to protect myself. Our, our caller, Robert, from Greensboro, North Carolina, in the end, it's going to be up to me to defend my property. How do you think that influences the, the debate that happens after one of these mass shootings or just the ongoing gun violence? I think in the aftermath of a mass shooting, what we're seeing right now is a lot of people grappling to understand why. Um, And unfortunately, the people that can answer that are most of the time no longer with us to be able to tell us that. Perhaps this individual, like other shooters, has left behind some sort of a manifesto uh, that'll give us some sort of insight into the the mindset that he had before he carried out this attack. But when we're looking at the gun debate, especially in this immediate aftermath, it seems very knee-jerk in that, okay, this has happened, now what do we do? And so that seems to be a very quick and easy fix. And so ultimately, you know, you have one side that says we need more gun control. The other side says we need more gun rights or or less control. And so everybody's sort of missing, I think, the bigger picture of this time is really heightened in terms of our sense of um, fear, in terms of our shock, in terms of our questioning why this has happened. And it's very hard to have a very sincere discussion about that. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover. And it's a conversation about where guns meet American identity. Why so many gun owners believe that Having the right to possess a firearm is intrinsic to their sense of freedom and their idea, an ideal of self-reliance. Talk to me about that if you're a gun owner. If, if, if you support some restrictions to gun ownership, whether you have a gun or not, how do you explain this link between national identity and gun ownership? And I want to hear from you wherever you are, wherever you're listening today. It's very valuable for us to hear from you in, in a city like Chicago or St. Louis or if you're living in rural areas, Ohio and California and Wisconsin uh, and wherever. It's one eight three flyover one Get to us on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR. Use the hashtag flyover radio to Brian listening in San Diego. Hey, Brian. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. What do you want to say about this? Well, I have some issues with this. I'm a veteran. I was in the military, uh, airborne infantry. Uh, I got out and became a police officer. Uh-huh. A lot of times, but this issue, when I think about gun rights and things like that, especially being in California where the rights are really restricted on what you can do with firearms, um, it becomes – it is a part of our national identity. I think we – and that part of that, when you guys are talking about the history, it comes back to, you know, we rose up against tyranny, and we did that, you know, on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to, you know, more regulation, less regulation, um, my main issue is that as a police officer – I've seen time and time again where somebody gets arrested for, you know, using a gun in a crime or using using a firearm, you know, to, to injure or kill other people, and we arrest the person. And then what ends up happening is it goes to trial or it goes to court or it goes to the legal process, and, you know, the charges are dropped where the person is either, you know, pleads down to a lesser charge and the gun charge gets dropped or, you know, the gun charge gets dropped in lieu of other charges. And nothing happens. Um, I read in the newspaper, I think it was in Northern California, an NFL player was recently arrested. He had a loaded, high-capacity gun, but had more bullets than he's supposed to, uh, and it was a stolen gun in his car. Um, haven't heard anything again about it since. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's that's kind of where, I'm, where my biggest issue with these things are. So, so Brian, legislators. yeah, so it sounds like you're here to say we have enough gun laws. You don't see them being enforced as they should. Yeah, and the other okay. thing is when they're making these gun laws is that people that are making these gun laws have no idea what they're talking about half the time. Okay. Uh, you know, I think one of the representatives from Northern California was just – he did this huge thing on what he called ghost guns. But if you have any knowledge of firearms and, you know, guns and what they actually are, he was just babbling up there. And he's talking – and this is the person making legislation and making the rules. has no idea what he's talking about. Um, I, I want to turn to Brian Levin here because he's a former police officer. Brian, in New York City, is that where you worked? 
Yes, New served? York City. What, what do you think? Washington Heights. What do you think about what our Brian from San Diego is saying? Um, it really depends on the jurisdiction. Um, guns in places like D.C. or or New York, uh, they do they do enforce them. The the problem is there's so many cases, and also a lot of instances where the person is never caught. But uh, bottom line is, l- let's get some certain things established. Most gun owners are very responsible. Um, however, at a time when we've seen uh, the violent crime rate drop significantly over the last 25 years, uh, mass killings, particularly these, these large-scale ones that we've been seeing over the last decade, uh, while a sliver of all homicides have be, have become more prevalent. And that let me ask Jackie about that. Why your numbers I'm sure concur with what Brian is saying here Jackie. Why is that? Um, you know, our numbers actually show it's pretty stable. You know, one thing that we have to take into consideration is that in terms of a quantity um, of events, like the number of events that are happening, yes, there have been more. But our population is also increasing, which means that our rate, which is the only way that we would be able to compare over time, is remaining really stable. But I'd like to actually um, come back to something that the caller Brian just said, and sure. I think he made an excellent point. We look at this gun control and gun rights debate as very sort of one-dimensional. You're either for gun control or you're against gun control. And I think what he hit on that was really important is this idea of systems failure in that there's so many other things that are going on with relation to the guns. Um, In this case that he mentioned, it was uh, criminality or criminal acts. We've also seen with mental health. If we look at the Virginia Tech shooting, for instance, that individual was able to legally acquire guns because of a systems failure. And so I think what his point spoke to, and I certainly support his point, was that we have have enough laws on the books that aren't being enforced. And so rather than throwing new laws at the problem, maybe redirect our resources to addressing those systems failures that are allowing people who shouldn't have guns to have them. If you've just gotten in on the show, this is Flyover. I'm Carrie Miller, and we are talking today about where the access to guns and American identity meet, of course, in the wake of the mass shooting in Las Vegas last Sunday night. Why do so many gun owners uh, believe that their firearms give them a sense of freedom? What do the Americans who don't own guns and worry about accessibility to, to them think about that? I want to hear from you whether you live in a city, St. Louis, Chicago, Phoenix, wherever you're listening today. Also valuable to hear your perception about this if you live outside of cities, because as our guests have both acknowledged, there's a geographical lens of this, too. Talk to me about it today. 183-FLYOVER1. Use the hashtag if you're on Twitter, Flyover Radio. And stay with me. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News, a show today about guns and identity. Brian Levin with us, the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, and Jackie Schildkraut with us. She's an assistant professor of public justice at the State University of New York at Oswego. Jackie and Brian, so many people on the phone lines. I'm going to go right back to the calls to Sabrina in Chicago. Hi, Sabrina. Thanks so much for waiting. Really good to have you on the line. Tell me how you're thinking about this. Hi. Um, I really appreciate the expertise on the panel and just this discussion. I think that um, as a black woman, I live in Chicago. I am a gun owner. It's pretty interesting to hear the perspectives of gun ownership and what it means in terms of freedom, because I do think that having come from a military family, I've never been in the military, but um, my family, we that we do own guns, and I know that just with the racial issues in our country, my brother may be seen as more of a target, even though he's got a right to carry a concealed weapon. He's very skilled with weapons. He served in the military. I'm talking about an Eagle Scout. I know mm-hmm. folks won't see that if they see him with a gun. Right. Um, we do go to the driving to the to the gun range. We do. Um, we're skilled in that, but I don't think that when people talk about the rights of gun ownership, they think about how that, who are they thinking of when they're applying that freedom? And um, if I go back to like Philando Castile, he had a right to carry a gun. Mm-hmm. And that 
was one of the reasons him carrying that gun was one of the reasons. I don't quite know what the reasons are, but it didn't protect him. So it's always interesting to hear the perspective of um, gun rights and gun ownership because I, I don't know how vigorously that is sought after depending on who you're seeing in your mind with having the right to carry a gun. Sabrina, I want to ask you something because you're not who I think we think of when we think of the NRA's representation of gun owners. Does the way the NRA positions gun ownership and gun rights, do you feel like that's representative of, of what you want and who you are? Absolutely not. And I think that's it's great that we have Brian on the panel because just with the, 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 the groups that he's associated with, they're not representing me. And I know that my brother, when he was a Boy Scout, he would compete in these different gun competitions that the NRA may have supported and, and just things like that. But I know that the callers are never thinking of me and my family and the, our military background when they're thinking of these rights. And when there have been um, situations where black men have been shot, and there is a situation like a Flando Castile, mm-hmm. they don't vigorously fight for that issue where that person's rights were infringed upon. And so it is interesting because I, I feel like it's, it's, it's a very, I'm assuming it's very one-dimensional of who you're seeing has the right to carry a gun when you're talking about these rights. And for me, I worry, does it amplify me as a target or my brother or my uncle's um, you know, as targets because they're skilled and they have rights and they've got permits and they've got military training. Um, and, and they do feel there should be more gun regulations. I recall my brother, he, he collects weapons, but he, felt he, was, he was shocked and he called me on how easy it was for him to go to a gun show and pick up the, 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 the next gun that he was going to purchase. And he said, without he was a background the guy, check? do you want to see more like identification. He was just shocked. He called me on how easy it was to just hand over the cash and get the gun. I'm really glad we've talked about the NRA here for a minute, Sabrina. Thanks for the call. Brian, I'm interested in whether the NRA's political activities, and and maybe I should ask about their philosophy, really represent where most American gun owners are. Well, you know, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter because their strength, and it's not so much in money. People push that they are a very successful lobbying organization monetarily, and they are. But it's the fact that they have motivated members who contact uh, their their representatives. Uh, so uh, 32% of Americans own firearms. And even in surveys of these 32%, they are very much receptive to some forms of gun control. Uh, the NRA, with the exception of these bump stocks, uh, have generally uh, refused to be in a dialogue about any kind of meaningful regulation. Just one thing about the point I made before, though, and I just mm-hmm. stick with it. Um, our actual uh, murder rate has gone up. 2014 and 2015, as well as from 2011. And additionally, of the worst fatal mass shootings, four of the last five of the worst have been in the last 10 years. So uh, even as we've seen declines in, in crime overall, and then we've been bouncing up a bit over the last several years, mass shootings uh, have been getting more fatal for the worst ones. Jackie, I know why Brian says it doesn't really matter when I say when I ask about whether the NRA really represents where average Americans and average gun owners are. And I and I wonder if you agree with this. It is because they have the political clout that they have. And so they don't necessarily have to be fully in line with with American gun owners. How do you see it? I definitely think that they have a lot of political clout. I don't know that I'm as versed with them as Brian is um, in terms of, you know, their background and and their, um, you know, their abilities. But just from what I do know, they do have a lot of political power. And we know in this country that money talks. And when you've got a lot of it, you can also increase your political power. And so I think that that's certainly something that they have going for them on the lobbying front. I think, um, you know, just to to insert one thing here that we haven't gotten to, Mm -hmm. I think one thing that may 
may be sort of a hindrance in terms of passing new legislation um, takes us back to Columbine. And if uh, if you're the listeners remember back in 1994, Congress passed a federal assault weapons ban here yeah. in this country right. that regulated a number of semi-automatics, one of which was the Intratec Tech DC-9. That was also used in Columbine, and it was purchased from a private individual. The other three guns that were used in that uh, shooting were purchased at a gun show by a friend, which is a straw purchase. But the two shooters literally ran around the gun show and said, oh, do you do background checks? And people would say no. And they, okay, we'll buy from you. And so we saw a big push after Columbine to close the gun show loophole, and it was extremely unsuccessful. In fact, in the first year after Columbine, over 800 pieces of legislation were introduced introduced nationwide to get at this issue and various other issues related to gun control, and only 10 percent of them passed. Wow. Uh, To Sanjay in Cary, North Carolina. Hey, Sanjay, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. No problem. Um, I I had a question similar to the point that was raised. Um, After the Columbine uh, massacre, uh, there were a lot of discussion around uh, you know, traceability of guns. Mm-hmm. And and I understand that ATF, by by law, are not allowed to create a database or put any kind of uh, gun control or gun-related ownership or gun uh, serial number, etc., in a database. To me, that is very limiting factor in investigation or, or for that matter, even removing uh, guns from the black market and, and many of these sources where people could get guns illegally. Um, and, and the other uh, comment I had, uh, and I would like to get some thoughts from uh, your uh, from Brian and team is, mm-hmm. perhaps it is time for us to change the, the dialogue and, and stop using words like control and regulation because those have negative connotations and put people on defensive. Maybe we should look at uh, measures where we still treat gun, uh, you know, guns being the right uh, for people to bear. Uh, but at the same time, how do we, um, you know, keep keep a measure on uh, measure on the guns that are uh, currently flowing in the U.S.? So change change kind of the contextual language around. Brian, is that a good point? I, I think it's a very good point, but remember, there has even been resistance to uh, having databases, and uh, even the, the federal government's accountability office uh, last year said that the systems really uh, uh, have some flaws. Okay, and to the phones to Annette in Oak Park, Illinois. Hi, Annette. Thank you very much for waiting. All right, thank you. Um, I live in Oak Park, a suburb of Chicago. Yeah. And I work in a high crime area uh-huh. um, in Chicago. Uh, a number of my colleagues who are African American do own guns because they live. Oh, Annette, shoot. I know all that time waiting for us to get to you, and then your phone just cut out. I, I think, Jackie, um, Annette was going to make a, a point that followed on what Sanjay said in North Carolina, which is how do we change the conversation around regulating and not banning? Why, when the discussion comes up to regulating accessories for guns, like these high-capacity magazines or these bump stocks, does the discussion seem to immediately slide to banning guns and you're not going to do that and and there's a lot of political resistance to it? You know, I think we're in a in a climate right now, and especially this week, it's extremely raw with what's gone on with Las Vegas. We don't have a lot of answers. The investigation is really in its infancy, uh, especially given the scope of this particular shooting. I think right now everybody's so on edge that we jump to the most extreme, you know, it's all or nothing. And I think this was raised earlier by several callers and also by Brian that it's not necessarily an all or nothing argument that you can have guns, but you don't need to have these assault weapons or, you know, anything like that. One thing I thought that was really interesting, um, just kind of watching social media, mm-hmm. is that everybody all of a sudden said, oh, my gosh, they're going to regulate our guns. And right. why, why are people allowed to have assault rifles and, you know, automatic weapons? And I heard the video that came out of Las Vegas, and it certainly was an assault weapon or sorry, an automatic weapon. But 
and I said this before any information had ever been released, I said, I'm willing to bet based on the number of weapons that this individual had and the fact that they he didn't have a background is that he bought a bunch of semi-automatic weapons and converted them to fully automatic. And so he would have been outside of the scope of what was already being regulated anyway. And so I think because everybody looks at gun control and the gun rights argument as two very polarized black or white issues and they're not looking at the gray area in between, it makes it much more difficult to come to some sort of consensus that both sides are willing to give on. Uh, Glenn uh, called from Dury, Indiana, to say, as a 24-year veteran, I believe a gun, having a gun is a right, not a freedom. I don't think the average person who enjoys shooting should have that taken away, but we should regulate the types of weapons that people can own. And Andrew called from Hibbing, Minnesota, says, I own over 100 guns. I teach firearm safety. I see them as part of what America's about. I use them for self-defense, hunting, collecting, competitions. Guns aren't the problem. It's the mental health problems of people. And then we had a call from someone who said, I think from Las Vegas. Yeah, Mike in Las Vegas said, politicians are all talk. Until we ban ammunition, it's all just talk. The guns are still there. Brian, I I wonder about, so, so it seems like the NRA is willing to have this conversation about these bump stocks. Is that a place where some of these accessories, the high capacity magazines and some of the other accessories where progress could be made and it would be more representative of where the average American gun owner is at or not? Well, well, look, this is um, a sacrificial lamb. Um, While bump stocks do not technically make uh, semi-automatics Uh, machine guns, they do enable them to fire hundreds of rounds a minute, so functionally very close. But it it involves using the recoil to continually depress the trigger, not changing the actual trigger. Anyway, now that we've got that out of the way, um, they have not been that good with respect to virtually any regulation. The thing here is machine guns um, were outlawed. Uh, they remain so, except ones that were grandfathered in before 1986. But I'll tell you something. I think that part of this debate uh, is a bit out of context. Uh, what, meaning what? Well, I, I, I think by all means, we should have dialogue and debate and discussion about how to regulate assault rifles. Um, uh, that Absolutely. Our, we had uh, people attack our community. Uh, but in San Bernardino, if, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think there are questions about, you know, regulating these. And I don't think there's any big constitutional issue to that as a political one. But if we look at the number of homicides for the latest year that we have from rifles, uh, of which AR-15s and others are a subset, mm-hmm. we had 252 homicides from these rifles. Now, imagine just in this one event, we had 59 people killed. So that's a large proportion of those that were killed uh, in in 2015. Compare that to 6,450, basically, for handguns. I see. So, you know, it's a terrible thing, and it makes headlines, and it's like plane crashes and things like that. But you are at a far greater odd of getting killed by a handgun, which is much more constitutionally protected and much much more ubiquitous and easy to conceal. So um, we definitely should have a talk about assault weapons, and constitutionally, uh, we can certainly regulate that much more. But uh, I think there's uh, there's a bigger problem with respect to handguns, and and that's going to be much tougher to uh, get into a dialogue about because both sides are are somewhat entrenched, and in particular the NRA, which wants virtually no regulation. I want to grab a call here from Virginia in Durham, North Carolina. Virginia, glad you got in. Tell me what what you're thinking about what you've heard. Thank you. Um, I I had heard an earlier caller with this beautiful articulation um, of his right to own a gun. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, you know, he was talking about the difference between being a subject and a citizen and how owning a gun made him a citizen and he really liked having that power. And I definitely support gun ownership. Um, I'm originally from South Carolina. We're talking about the geography. And so in South Carolina, 
it's very much so that everyone does have, you know, a gun. But I also think that it's important to understand my right to my general welfare. Mm. Um, We talk about the right to bear arms, but what about my right to walk down the street and feel safe without having to arm myself? Um, I'm a religious woman, and I don't think I'd be able to use the gun. So I don't think that I'd... It would make sense for me to have for for me to use that right. Um, my father knew Senator Pinckney, who died in the um, oh. in the uh, Mother Emanuel shooting, and I don't think if any of those people had guns that they would use them. So I think it does come back to just common sense um, regulations that we need to put in place, whether that's with gun shows or mental health checks. Anything is better than what we've got now. Virginia, I'm so glad you heard the show and you had an opportunity to call in. Thank you. And Jackie, I mean, I'm going to close this conversation thinking we had a lot of different voices and a lot of different perspectives and we can have a kind of reasonable common sense, as, as Virginia was noting, discussion about this. And our political arena just doesn't seem to reflect that. I have about a minute, Jackie, if you'd if you'd say something about that. Sure. You know, one thing that I think that Virginia mentioned that was a really good point is sort of this having a right and using a right. And, you know, one thing just to speak very quickly about is the fact that we've seen instances where concealed carry weapons um, holders have used their gun and stopped a shooter um, in 2007 at the New Life Church in Colorado Springs. And we've seen more recent cases where people were like, there's no way I'm pulling my gun because law enforcement's going to think that I'm the shooter. We've also seen, of course, back in I think it was 2000. 2012, when there was a shooting outside the Empire State Building and law enforcement responded, they took out the shooter and they shot nine bystanders. And these are individuals who have a lot more training than the average gun owner, which is, I think, what some of your earlier callers were speaking to. So I think we just need to have an open dialogue about what's realistic to do where we don't infringe on people's rights, but we ensure that they have the training that's needed. Jackie, thanks for joining our dialogue today on this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And Brian, good to talk to you again. Thank you so much for being part of Flyover. Thank you, as always. Our producers are Marquita Fornoff, Elizabeth Shockman, and Jeff Jones. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Jeffrey Wilson composed our theme music. Thanks for listening to Flyover from NPR News.